What's good, everybody? It's our favorite time of the year here at the Black Effect. We're headed down to Atlanta for the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival, and we're not going alone. Nissan is back as our partner, and they're continuing their Pitch Your Podcast Lounge at the festival, where you'll have the opportunity to pitch your podcast idea live and share it with the Black Effect team. So get those podcast ideas ready. And remember, you can count on Nissan to dial up the thrill in your adventures, no matter where life takes you. Visit blackeffect.com slash podcast festival for more details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk? Get vaccinated. But but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. I'm Erica Alexander. And I'm Whitney Dow. Welcome to Reparations, The Big Payback, a production of Color Farm Media, iHeartRadio, and the Black Effect Podcast Network. Hey, Erica, I want to play you something. Two stitches, two tiny stitches, and one across. Like this, ma'am? Excellent. Only you have clever fingers and a mind to match. You make it easy to learn, ma'am. Sound familiar? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, that's a ghost from miniseries past. <laughs> it's a familiar because it's me. I'm 16 and I'm playing the part of a slave named Oni Judge in a miniseries called George Washington, The Forging of a Nation. Yeah. I remember that. Where'd you get that from? Wow, Whitney. I got my ways. Yeah, I see. Well, she was Martha Washington's personal slave. This is what I know, at least that's what they told me. And... um she might have had other duties, you know, like polishing Georgie Porgy's cherry tree. <laughs> but yeah, that was one of my first gigs. I was thrilled to get it, too, because I got to act alongside of the legendary Patty Duke and shop at the gift shop. You know, they filmed that at Mount Vernon Plantation. Well, you know, Erica, I had a chance to watch this miniseries, and it looked like in this that you and Martha were pretty tight. No, Oni and Martha were pretty tight, not me. Don't get it. Let's, let's be clear about this. And uh, maybe, I don't know. You know, my friend Chinjirai, who does the Uncivil podcast, that's the first place I heard Oni's real story. Otherwise, I wouldn't know much about it. But, I mean, it's extraordinary how African-American and their slave experience have mostly been authored by white people. I mean, to a lot of black people, that's like Nazis writing Jewish Holocaust memoirs. And thank goodness for Roots, because boom, that's when it changed things, and we started taking the narrative back. But up until that point, for the most part, it was from a white point of view. And just to be clear, George Washington, The Forging of a Nation, is supposed to be about his life, not hers. But if there's an industry that could need urgent care and redress of reparations inside of media and storytelling, yeah, that's Hollywood, because the white gaze has single-handedly deformed and destroyed blackness. Well, I would argue that the media has also deformed whiteness too, Erica, not to destroy it, but to present it as something that it wasn't. Now, do you mind hearing from some more white people on slavery? Yes, I mind. Are you crazy? Did you just hear <laughs> what I just said? 
I mean, we're like on different planets right now. But Eric, I think you're letting white people off the hook. I let them off the hook. Okay. (laughs) Yes, they should have to tell the accurate story. There are some white people who are trying to do that. Will you give it just a chance? So you're saying it's possible that they can. I mean, but see, I'm saying that they did it whether it was possible or not. And I'm sure, by the way, some people did a lot better than most. But you want to do it now, here. Yes. Do the history of slavery from a white point of view. That's correct. That's ballsy. I'll do what I can. Okay, black people. uh, (laughs) Everybody, you know what? I'm going to give this white man a chance to do his thing here. Do not send the letters to me. Okay, thank you, Erica. Good luck, player. (laughs) Okay. Now, let's get back to Oni. Lovely, Oni. Lovely. I watch you like a hawk, man. Then I practice in my room till I get it right. I'm beginning to think that you learn faster than I can teach you. Ma'am, I... I've been wanting to say this for a long time. When Mama died of the fever and you took us in, I just want you to know how thankful I was and always will be. My dear Oni. Took us in. Thankful. Wow, that's interesting phrasing for a slave. Well, what could I say? The whole truth would have destroyed George Washington's hero mythology. So the writers create a story that preserves him and... Mangles only. Yeah. The story is sanitized. The result is a made-for-TV Frankenstein movie mess. Thank you. I was my, one of my first... I'm happy to be in this, Whitney. You're bringing this up and you're tearing it apart. <laughs> now, now, now I'm rethinking everything. That is, that's not my attention, but now, I don't know if you remember, there's a big plot twist. Oni is missing. Oh, I remember. Then where could she be, George? Oh, I'm sure she just met a friend in the market and they went down to look at the ships. I have the most awful feeling something's happened. Excuse me. Christopher, Mrs. Washington is worried about Oni. She's been missing for several hours. Do you know where she might be? No, sir. But she's been acting rather strange lately. Strange? Whispering all the time. With Molly. Would you bring Molly to us, please? Yes, sir. She hasn't been herself. She used to come to me with all her little concerns and questions. For days now, she's kept to herself. Has it affected her work? She's too conscientious for that. But all I get is yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I'm afraid for it, George. Molly, do you know where Oni is? No, sir. I think you do. No, sir. Molly, you must tell us the truth. No, she may be in trouble. Need help? No. No. Please, Molly. She ran away with Gerald, the Frenchman. I warned that Mount Vernon because he, he tried with me first. He gonna do her wrong, I know. Oh, George. Molly, do you know where they went? They long gone now, sir. Where? New England. Freedom. Freedom? He doesn't care about her freedom. He wants her. She'll be ruined and he'll abandon her. I didn't want her to go, ma'am. I swear I didn't. I know. It's all right, Molly. Why would she want to flee a situation where she's treated so well? Where she's loved. Wow. There's a lot to unpack in that scene, Erica. Yeah, that was riveting. No comment on the plot. Media and storytelling suffered then, like it does now, from a chronic white superiority. It's like a dry rot. It's just up in there. And um, Oni or any other black person is unrecognizable, you know, inside of that. That's not Oni, by the way. That's her hologram. <laughs> her palimpsest visited 1986 and made a made-for-TV movie. That's not her, so. Yeah, but Erica, let's be honest here. Don't you think that was the goal, right? Like, the rewriting and presentation of history to support the idea of American exceptionalism? And the inherent goodness of white Americans, right? Yeah. You know, the scene seems laughable now to us, yeah. but it's really not because the real story of Oni, Judge, and George Washington was so bonkers. You know, George Washington placed an ad in the Philadelphia Gazette on May 24th, 1776, after, you know, his loving Oni went missing. And Ooh. this is what he said Absconded from the household of the President of the United States, Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled with very black eyes and bushy hair just like you. 
She's a middle school. <laughs> okay. I just, I'm, now I'm really happy I got the role because I don't, I don't look anything like who they're describing, but go on. She's a middle stature, slender, and deliberate. Oh, delicately. Formed. Delicately. About 20 years of age. She has many changes of good clothes of all sorts, but they are not sufficiently recollected to be described, which I think is really weird. Here's this person he loves. He doesn't even remember what she looks like, really. He's saying that, you know. Well, no, he doesn't. No, he, he knows what she looks like. She, he doesn't know what her clothes look like. You know, trust me, that black, bushy eyed stuff, that's telling us a lot. Freckled. It's like, no, she knows. He knows. <laughs> You know, then he goes on with my favorite line. He says, there was no suspicion of her going off, nor no provocation to do so. No provocation. Mm. And then he goes on to offer $10 to anyone who will, quote, bring her home. Only 10 Wow. Damn. As if that's her home, right? So, right, no provocation. Apparently, Erica, owning someone who, you know, isn't supposed to provoke you. If, if somebody owned you, would that provoke you? Job, please. I get provoked nowadays if you look at me wrong. So, you know. What do you want? Look, I, I know, I know that I provoke you at times too, but that's another that's another story. <laughs> Erica, when you play that role, you said that you didn't know Oni's real story. That you were here, you are, yeah, a young black woman playing a young black woman who was enslaved by George Washington, the father of our country, and who was so concerned about her escape because he quote loved her at the time. How did that hit your ears? It didn't. I had no awareness of it. You know, by the way, being black is. A state of mind. Certainly being Negro is a state of mind. Being a nigger is a state of mind. And she would have seen herself as maybe a very, you know, she's in big house, but she's still a nigger in their eyes. So the film is faithful to her status, only didn't exist anymore to the filmmakers than she existed in 1773, except as decoration to George Washington and his benevolence and all that other stuff. And look at, you know, it's interesting when you say delicately formed. That's amazing that they described her that way. That's a, a mind ripper. But it makes me think, you know, talking about not existing. You know, there's another famous George, George Floyd, who was killed in an eight-minute, 46-second blockbuster. Everyone saw that one. Mm -hmm. But he did not exist to that white officer. And that's why, if you look at media, representation matters, and we need reparations if we want black lives to matter. Well, let me try and do my part here, Erica, and recontextualize the story that we just heard, the story of Oni and uh, George. Here's the real story, that there was no Frenchman. Oni found out that the loving Martha had decided to give her as a wedding present to her granddaughter. And she knew this granddaughter who was just awful, so she decided to leave. She just jumped on the ship called the Nancy that was headed to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and she settled down there, married a free black man named Jack Staines, and they had three children. Now... Washington never stopped pursuing her. Of course. And when he discovered her whereabouts, he sent this man named Whipple to try and convince her to come back. Mm. What's amazing is she agreed, but she had one condition, that if she came back, the Washingtons would promise to free her after their death. Not, well, they were, she was alive for coming back, but after they died. So she essentially was you know, agreeing to serve as their slave for you know, however long they were going to be alive for. And, well, that, of course, was not agreeable to George Washington. So he hatched another plan with his nephew, and he was going to kidnap her. But luckily for her, the locals tipped her off, and she got away. Great find worked, finally, for once, yeah. But he never stopped trying to get her, and he wanted to come for her children, too, because even though Staines, her husband, was a freeman, the children he had with Oni legally belonged to the Washingtons. So by getting her, he could get her three children as well. Well, he didn't become George Washington, the general that saved America from the British by giving up. <laughs> he was always going to come for her. That's her, you know, it was his property to her. I mean, she was no one. But we got to give a shout out to the underground grapevine finally working for a sister. <laughs> you know, they helped her escape again. She's being watched. She's being pursued. She's on the run. I mean, Oni's white folks keep popping up and saying, we own you, you're ours, we're going to pursue you and find ways to pursue you and remind you that we still own you. And black folks, I promise you, feel that today. I mean, we are just surveilled all the time under surveillance, and it's astonishing, and it's manifested in just different ways. You heard of that young black man in Texas, Rodney Reese? He's walking home from work, Whitney? Mm-hmm. Crazy story. Yeah, well, he was arrested because he was walking in the street. Now, this is during a massive climate catastrophe. <laughs> the police had time to do that, to arrest a young man. He had his mask on. He's walking home from Walmart, minding his own business. 
But their business has always been to undermine our business, to watch us, to pursue us. And, you know, I have friends who right now say they feel surveilled through Zoom and claim they have to justify their whereabouts, even under quarantine. Like, oh, where are you at? You know, and they don't like doing that. I mean, everything is connected. You know, the wheel turns. It's interesting, Erica. Also, what we see with this storytelling, one of the things that white people have always done is they've been able to tell stories about themselves because they didn't have, they could always deny the evidence. There was like plausible deniability. And what's happening with all these things, like the, like you know, talking about Rodney Reese and some of these other stories, is that there's actually evidence now. The cam- there were these body cams on the police with the cell phones people are carrying. They're now showing the story and white people are forced to watch this new story and reevaluate the context of how they're seeing things. And you know, this is what we're learning. This is what we're talking about, right? Is that the stories we tell ourselves about America, as you call it, America the Beautiful, is that things are always a little more complicated, a little darker than we'd like to admit. Not just a little, Whitney. Come on. They're a lot darker. <laughs> They're very complicated. You know, you're doing <laughs> too much little darker. stuff. That's minimizing. It's not little. It's a very, it's a lot complicated. Yes, a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Continue. The other thing we've been talking about, how this strand of slavery, this sort of strand of horror that sort of permeates so many of these stories that's not called out. I think I think that reparations should include a storytelling component, a component where we retell our stories and we people have to relearn history and learn the full story. So Americans have a true understanding of their history. So in the full story of Washington, you know, Mr. I Cannot Tell a Lie, and who was celebrated for freeing his slaves after his death, he pursued a young black woman whose only crime was she wanted to seek the same freedom that he had spent decades fighting for. You know, it's funny, that guy Whipple, who he, who he sent to actually try and convince her to come back, he wrote to Washington telling him, quote, a thirst for freedom had been her only motive for absconding. And this is how, you know, the founder of our country, the father of our country responded, which is pretty depressing. I regret that the attempt you made to restore the girl should have been attended with so little success. To reward unfaithfulness, this was about her asking to be freed out of death, with a premature preference, thereby disconnect beforehand the minds of all her fellow servants who by their steady achievements are far more deserving than herself of favor. So what he's saying is that only people who submit to bondage willingly are deserving of freedom. Anybody who has the temerity to try and take freedom for themselves like he did, well, they should forget about it. Yeah. Well, you know, the father of our country is the father of our suffering, the father of our bondage, the father of tremendous evil. And again, you know, and if you just flip the script a little bit and see it from the African's point of view, he's, he's worse than Hitler. He's setting up a country to be independent, but self-supportive of the biggest Holocaust in world history. So let's get that straight, number one. But I think we should just move on because, oh, this is cute. And I like thinking about, you know, old jobs that I have. I mean, I really, really do. Despite that, I still will cherish the time I had on there and you know, what it meant for me to be chosen to be on a series like that, because it was a big deal. It moved me forward. But let's move on, because only just one slave story in a long history of slavery. and We got to haul ass if we're going to get through it. So this woman, she's got a very interesting history and has been telling the truth and putting it out there. Her family uh, was an owner of slaves, a white woman named Brown. Hey, everyone. I am so excited. The Black Effect is live. This April 27th, the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival is headed to Atlanta's very own Pullman Yards. Last year was incredible, and this year will be even more thrilling, especially with Nissan coming back along for the ride. Nissan is returning with some empowering activations to support Black excellence in the STEAM fields. Have a podcast idea you've been eager to share with the culture? Well, Nissan is back with a Pitch Your Podcast Lounge. You'll have the chance to record your podcast idea and have it shared with a Black Effect podcast network team. But that's not all. Nissan is taking the stage to spotlight some of the HBCU scholars from their own Thrill of Possibility Summit, Nissan's action-packed weekend of community building, mentorship, and 
and professional development for HBCU scholars pursuing professions in STEAM. The Black Effect Podcast Festival is the event to be at. You won't want to miss this because no matter where life takes you, Nissan will dial up the thrill of your adventures. Visit blackeffect.com forward slash podcast festival for more details. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. My father would whisper when he was talking about Black people. And there was just a message that came through that whisper that was, we have to be very carefully and we can't talk about this much. So it wasn't that he was saying anything overtly racist or anything like that, but just a sort of like tread lightly kind of feeling that pervaded the low voice. My name's Katrina Brown, and my life revolves primarily around my discovery that my ancestors were the largest slave-trading family in U.S. history. It was just complete cognitive dissonance, the idea that they could have been slave traders. So the idea that I came from a family of ministers and academics, and like my grandfather was a philosophy professor, my other grandfather was a minister, so there was some pride around not being in money-making occupations, but being in more service, the betterment of mankind type occupations. So no one realized that the DeWolfs were basically the largest slave trading family in U.S. history. So statistically, they brought more Africans on their ships than any other family, North or South. So a huge fortune was amassed from all of this. That was pretty much squandered by a couple generations later. We wouldn't be able to say we inherited money directly from the slave trade, but it's really obvious to me that we have been in the elite ever since. And it fits the pattern where once you're in the elite, you marry other elite families. So I'm like super aware of the class privilege that has remained, even if we're not at like the uber rich level. And I'm super aware of how much social capital I have. So we've gone to a lot of Ivy League schools, private schools, you know, so I've had just the best education and that's a pattern in the family. So just extremely aware of how much we were set up to succeed basically and to be able to go into the professions of our choosing, et cetera, et cetera. Embarrassing might sound like too small of a word, but it's just embarrassing to admit the ways in which the cover-up manifested. You know what I mean? It's so mortifying still. Like, can I even say this, that it was being trivialized? How could it have been trivialized of all things to trivialize? But there was the kind of party line, shall we call it, was about referring to them as pirates, scallywags, boys will be boys. You know, that was kind of the energy around it, like a dismissive like, oh, those back then, those, you know, that's what people did back then. And those rapscallions, you know, there's a way in which despite working on this for 25 years, it's still too shocking to even contemplate. There's still too muchness to it that operates within my psyche. 
I had a cousin who shared with me early on. She said, I assumed that if it was the DeWolfs and it was the slave trade, it must have been a polite slave trade. And then she, of course, laughed at herself because she was like, of course, it wasn't a polite slave trade. There's no such thing as a polite slave trade. But it was by way of saying, like, we're good people. We're nice people. We're polite, right? That's who we are. So if we did it, we must have done it in a polite manner. So you have caught me in the act of manifesting that tendency to minimize and to understate it because to state it baldly as it is, is just still to me so upsetting. So if I were doing a do-over, I would say they purchased human beings who had been kidnapped by force and were in a complete and utter state of terror and It was the most horrific type of circumstance one could possibly imagine. And my ancestors did it over and over and over again. And as my cousin Tom said, they must have known it was evil. How could you not when you were hearing people screaming in the holds below? And yet they somehow told themselves stories to justify that this was okay. And their blood runs in me. Rascals and scallywags. (laughs) <laughs> That's another way to put it. Uh, yeah. Well, at least she's admitting that her family history had been sanitized. Like George Washington, there's a pattern that develops very clearly. What a brutal system, though. Right? I mean, it makes me wonder, does karma exist? I'm not mean-spirited, Whitney. I don't want you to think that. But has this knowledge been brutal for Katrina Brown's family? Because they've prospered. They've done well. I mean, are the sins of the father really visited upon the son inside of the family? What do they feel? But she's certainly trying to bear the weight and atone for that evil legacy. But I don't know. Maybe white folks, you know, in in your DNA, it isn't encoded the same way that it is for descendants of slaves. But I'll keep looking for signs of life. Maybe it's a cosmic curse, Whitney, that's cast upon your people that will always keep most whites at arm's length with their reckoning of slavery. Yeah. I mean, it may, you may have that, but it's working for you now, but it will not stop Nemesis. If we're talking about storytelling, Nemesis is on your ass. No doubt. I think the only way to stop it, Eric, is for white Americans to fully acknowledge their legacy. They have to accept their history if they want to live as moral humans. That's kind of what I think. And I think that any sentient white person with the slightest bit of self-reflection has to grapple with this. You know... We, white people, have been the dominant storytellers for so long, and we could use tools to lie the necessary facts, or we use minimizing language to create a moral space for ourselves in a story we know that in our hearts is immoral. And I'm going to get a little fanboy here when I talk about Edward Baptist. He wrote a book called The Half Has Never Been Told that I think all white people should read, and I'm going to paraphrase him here. I think he says something like, historians have for years used minimizing language about the true nature of the slave system. They talk about discipline, quote, and punishment, as if there were some logical basis for the system of slavery rather than simply naming it for what it was, a super profitable economic system whose lowest gear was torture. A man named Henry Clay, named after the almost president, secretary of state, senator from Kentucky, Henry Clay, who had been born in in North Carolina and then as a young adult sold to Louisiana, talks about the enslaver who he was owned by who uh, had a whipping machine. And so when somebody didn't do their work at the speed and the pace that the slave owner thought was appropriate, they'd be tied down on the whipping machine and somebody would crank a handle and that would turn a wheel which had a bunch of whips attached to it. And it would whip the person who was tied down on the bench that was part of the machine. I read this story and I said, you know, this is working on a couple of different levels here, right? So it's working on a level for Henry Clay and that he may or may not have actually seen this thing, right? But it's also working on a level that I think he probably intended as a metaphor, right? This is a metaphor for the system of labor and slavery itself. Didn't do the amount of labor that you were supposed to do. Right? If you refused to, to consent to the extraction of your labor, you were going to be tortured in a predictable fashion, which, of course, inspires people to do whatever they can to try to avoid that torture. So I thought about that and I said, you, you know, this also is a, a metaphor 
for the system on a couple of levels as well. Because there are a number of different forces that are acting to push, even enslavers are getting pushed, right, to extract even more labor, right? The more cotton that gets produced relative to supply, the lower the price is going to be. And so to increase revenue, they are going to push, they're going to turn the whipping machine, if you will, they are going to push enslaved people to work harder. And so the whipping machine, if you think about it as a, a metaphor for the system of measurement and torture with the intent of increasing the amount of labor extracted, that whipping machine, right, is geared into the other machines, the other relationships, which you might call the political economy of the Atlantic world, of the Anglo-European world in the first half of the 19th century, all the way up until the Civil War, right? Because if cotton prices go up, <laughs> that's going to inspire more people to buy more slaves, increase their amount of production. If cotton prices go down, in many cases, will inspire them to increase production as well so they can increase the total amount of revenue. So no matter what happened, the whipping machine was going to keep turning faster and faster because it's tied into these other movements of supply and demand in the industrializing West. The whipping machine, used to inspire fear, used to improve productivity from other slaves who want to avoid a similar fate. It reminds me of stop and frisk. It reminds me of three strikes, you're out. I mean, it's all ways to keep a nigger in line. Really, it's insidious. Well, you wanted to have white people talk about slavery. How's your team doing? Well, that's not really for me to answer, right? I think it's for you. And I think that if we're going to talk about slavery, who better? We created it. We perpetuated it. We benefited from it. Don't you think we should also contribute to explaining it accurately for a change? You know, as well as work to help clean up the mess. And that's, you know, I think a lot about this Baldwin quote about not being able to change anything you don't face. So I think it's our obligation. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, white people always rely on black people to lead the racial conversations, and it gives them permission to lay in the cut. But um, if you ignore it, it's self-sabotage. We see what happens. Race is a white construct fixed to black people. Black people cannot save you all from destruction. You know, how can you save a destroyer? White people have to get it. They're tearing up their own village by denying that they're not only the source of the boogeyman, they are the boogeyman. Boo. <laughs> Sorry, Whitney. I know I tried. I tried to let you use all white voices to tell the story of the history of slavery, but it just didn't feel right. So it's time for me, Eric E., to disrupt the disruptor. I got to figure out how, though. You know, I actually think that there should be a hotline for black people when we need to talk to white people about difficult topics that have to do with black people. We call the hotline, and it would immediately patch us through to somebody that can help the rest of us sort this stuff out. I know Meghan Markle, wish she had that hotline when she was hanging out with those royals in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I'm lucky because I have friends who have friends who have friends who can help me. So let's do this like who wants to be a millionaire. I'm going to call a friend. Who am I going to call? Oh, I know. I know. I know who to call. This behold, he's perfect. He's perfect. Let me do this. Come on, come on. Please be in. He's an OG raised by OGs. He was born a prince of the movement and raised by black kings. Man, this man's in the struggle. He's our equivalent of American royalty. Yeah, I know he can figure this out. Reverend Al, thank you so much for this. I know you are a very busy man, and I admire you so much. So I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate being Ask to be with you, Erica. No problem. And I have a lot of respect for you down through the years. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I don't need to tell you that everywhere we go, there are white voices who author black stories. And they've done it throughout the years, whether it's slave narratives and those types of things. Why do you think that white people feel compelled to take the lead and sometimes take over telling stories and narratives about black folks? What it comes down to is white supremacy. They take ownership, and some of it is subliminal, but it's there, that they are more qualified to tell us our story and others our story than we are ourselves. Uh, I was reading this book on Frederick Douglass and how when Frederick Douglass was a runaway slave, 
worked his way from New York to New England, and there was buzz around the uh, abolitionist world about this well-built slave that uh, was bright, could read, and uh, that we could use him to go out there and push our cause. And the white uh, New Englanders who were leading the abolitionist movement brought him in, and they started bringing him around to various gatherings. And then he started speaking and they were like, no, 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 no. We don't need you to talk. We just need you to be there, be the slave. We'll do the talking. It's like, we are really not saying you're equal. We sympathize with y'all, but let us do the talking. Let, let us write out the screenplay. Let us tell the black experience. Oh no, you're not ghetto enough. Come on, let's muddy it up a little. <laughs> Rather than allowing us as equals to say, wait a minute, this is our journey. And we know our journey better than anybody. And that is a form of white supremacy. I, I run into it even in my civil rights political work where progressives feel that they can tell blacks how we deal with our suffering more than we can tell ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have allies. I'm not saying we can't work with people. But you can't take ownership of me and you. Uh. A person that was like a father figure uh, to me, James Brown. And part of the problem that uh, I saw firsthand that he had is that you actually had musical producers and presidents of record companies that wanted to tell him how to do black music. Well, you know, Mr. Brown, that's a little too raw. That's a little too, why don't we kind of modify that a little? And James was saying, maybe that's where I got it from. You gonna tell me how to be black? You gonna tell me what I'm doing? And that was his fight. And he did not get some of the things that other more, quote, mainstream black artists got till later in life because they considered him too ghetto. And I'll never forget, Erica, in the last year of his life, he said to me, he said, you know what, Rev? I said, what? He said, the difference between me and some artists is they wanted to go mainstream for commercial and financial success. He says, I wanted to make mainstream come black because I was not going to not be me in order to make a few dollars. And that's how I grew up in activism and what I do in media. And a lot of people, they will play whatever role, not only on the screen or on the set, they play that role in the office and let other people write their story to them. Like we don't have enough sense to know our own stories to write our own story. And we thank them for interpreting to us a journey that we went through and know that they only are guessing about. Hey everybody, this is Carrie Champion and I'm here to announce that the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival is headed to Atlanta's very own Pullman Yards on April 27th. Last year was incredible, and this year will be even more thrilling, especially with Nissan coming back along for the ride. Nissan is returning with some empowering activations to support Black excellence in the STEAM fields. Have a podcast idea you've been eager to share with the culture? Well, Nissan is back with your Pitch Your Podcast Lounge. You'll have the chance to record your podcast idea and have it shared with the Black Effect Podcast Network team. But that's not all. Nissan is taking the stage to spotlight some of the HBCU scholars from their own Thrill of Possibility Summit. Nissan's action-packed weekend of community building, mentorship, and professional development for HBCU scholars pursuing professions in STEAM. The Black Effect Podcast Festival is the event you want to be at. You don't want to miss it because no matter where life takes you, Nissan will dial up the thrill in your adventures. Visit blackeffect.com slash podcast festival for more details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. That's, I think, where the rubber meets the road, is the exact storytelling that we tell ourselves. I have a theory about Mr. George Floyd. I believe that he was killed because of the narrative in the white officer's mind who told him that he was not only able to do it, he would do it with impunity, and he could do it in broad daylight, and that still would not matter because as a white man, as you say, white superiority, that narrative runs deep. What do you say to that type of thinking and how it's placed in the white frame of mind? I think that you hit it right on the head. It's a born sense of entitlement that, of course, I can put my knee on a neck. And uh, yeah, it might not be nice to the family, but nothing's going to happen to me because I'm white and they're blacks. That's just the assumption, which is why I'm walking to the pulpit to preach uh, the funeral of George Floyd. But halfway through the sermon, Erica, it hit me why George Floyd resonated with so many of us, because we've gone through a lot of uh, police brutality before, but the outpouring was global. And it was because the knee on his neck symbolized what all of us have gone through. And that's what I preached about. We would have been better in Hollywood and Harlem if y'all didn't put your knee on our neck. That knee on our neck that you would hold us down and ask us why we weren't rising, we would have rose if you didn't have your knee on our neck. And when we saw that cop's knee on George's neck, we thought about what happened to our careers, our professions, our families, because we've been fighting the knee on our neck all of our lives, all of our existence since we got here. And that is what George Floyd represented. And that's why it resonated inside of us, even subconsciously, when we didn't understand why. Mm. Well, we've been told a version of ourselves that is stereotypical. I don't even know if we know what a real black person looks like half the time because it's been distorted and we've also accepted that distortion. What do we need to do to return ourselves to some sort of narrative that starts to not only tell our story, but tell our story not through the Negro that was created beforehand? I think we've got to go back and discover who and what we are, and that is manifested in different ways. We owe different tribes, but that all of those were real. We've got to claim who we are unapologetically. Mm. And then we must stand and own that space and say that's non-negotiable. And anyone else from the outside that wants to interfere and in many ways modify our story we must tell our community we ought not patronize them or support them. We can no longer allow ourselves to be interpreted by those that do not understand us. And that's why I think that we've got to start with our authenticity. If I've got to be somebody else for you to accept me, then I'm bowing to white supremacy. God made me. You don't have to remake me. I was fine the way he made me. Just get out of my way. Get your knee off my neck. <laughs> Ooh, that's the best hotline you could ever have. Straight to Reverend Sharpton. But I need to get back to Whitney. See what he's got in store for me. There's one more thing I want to talk about when it comes to storytelling, Erica, and that's protagonists. You know, protagonists have names. Adam, Ishmael, Loman. Yes, I know they're all white men. Our names mean something and tell us something about the role of the hero in the story. And here are my names, Erica. Alexander and Dow mean very, very different things. When I was growing up, we had a book in our house called The Book of Dow. This book cataloged various branches of our family going back to 1639 when a guy named Henry Dow sailed here from England. You know, I was never that interested in the book. It was big, had a lot of charts and stuff, but it did have some value to me in the sense that I kind of knew where I came from in a very specific sense, like who my ancestors were and how their stories flowed through the history of our country. 
And I bring this up because I thought about this the other day when you were, we were talking to our producer and you complimented her on her name and she replied, that's my slave name. And that phrase always brings me up short. It's so direct and to the point, and it's a hard reminder of how different our histories are and how visible those histories are in the most direct and quotidian ways. So thinking about that, maybe want to ask you, Eric, about your name, Alexander. I wondered if you knew its origin and how you felt connected to it. You know, I know you know genealogy, but your name reflects a very different history, and I wondered how you thought about it. Well, Whitney, first of all, I want to say that I think it's really cool that you know who you are. It's some heavy stuff. It's a rare gift for anybody to have a book like that. And I recommend you spend more time appreciating that mighty book of Tao. And um, I'd like to see it, too. Did y'all put any of your bad deeds in it, you rascals and scallywags? Or, of course, it's just just the good stuff. But listen, your yesterday contains seeds to your tomorrow. So and it's no shade to you, by the way. I can bet you that what your family accomplished with all those centuries, and I'm not saying they didn't work hard and sweat and toil and all that stuff in the Book of Tao, but I know I accomplished in half a lifetime and on a Google Doc with the help of a series, <laughs> TV, <laughs> And network, you know, presence. But um, the people who write these things down and appreciate it and move it on, they're, they're seeking immortality. And I think I have already a little piece of that. And it wasn't easy to get because both my parents were orphans. And yes, DNA tells the real story of who I am. I know I have this blood from the Congo and from Ghana and a few other places. Um, but my real self is manifested in real time. I I'm who I am right now. And like many black people, I created myself from the mud that was laid at my feet with whatever parts and pieces I could get. So, no, if you want to know, I, I don't care or know what white man or woman gave my family its name because it was not meant to identify me. Certainly not anybody who'd gotten that name. It was meant to disappear us a brand. It's an ugly brand as far as I'm concerned. And it's meant to lay claim to our family's destiny. And it hasn't invested in our welfare or our human potential. I can't quantify the weight of my enslaver's inherited name. It's impossible. I just feel the the loss of having to carry it while I accomplish the impossible. That's why so many black people change or alter and dispose of their names. You're talking about People like Muhammad Ali, my friend Queen Latifah, LL Cool J, Quest Love, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, Maya Angelou, Stevie Wonder. They, they gave themselves those names. We implant our intention inside of them, and, and a rebirth happens. It creates space from it. You know, in America, black people need an alter ego to vanquish the evil that is around us. Now, after having said all that, My name is Erica Rose Alexander, and Alexander means protector of the people. And I shall continue to endeavor in that pursuit. I was renamed princess, by the way, twice in Africa by two different queen mothers in two different countries, 30 years apart. That was a powerful thing to go back and uh, experience that. So uh, you should know that I am African royalty. But to keep things casual, I give you permission, Whitney Dow of the Book of Dows, to simply call me Your Highness, or the Great. It's your choice, and uh, you're welcome. Next time on Reparations, the Big Payback. Slavery was eliminated in 1865 around the passage of the 13th Amendment. So people think that's history. That's a long time ago. And why are we still talking about it? The attitude is, get over it. And so I think it's important to restate some of those very pointed facts of brutality and the inhumanity of slavery. Most of our education, we were deprived of really in-depth understanding of slavery. It wasn't in our schools. We were basically trying to overcome. And I remember the slave narratives. I read them here and there in the recent years. And I remember the writing of a slave woman to her husband. He had been sent to another plantation. She said, come quickly, because I and your daughter are going to be sold tomorrow, and your son will be sold on the block. 
in another day. Who could live like this? Is that not worthy of a commission to study and to determine how we can do better and how we can make amends, how we can make the healing not only reflect on African Americans, but all of America? This podcast is produced by Eric Alexander, Ben Arnon, and Whitney Dow. The executive producers are Charlemagne the God and Dolly S. Bishop. The supervising producer is Nicole Childers, and the lead producer is Devin Mavic-Robbins. The producer-writer is Cerise Castle, and the associate producer is Kevin Pham, with additional research and writing support provided by Niall Blass. Original music by DJ DTP. Reparations, The Big Payback is a production of Color Farm Media, iHeartRadio, and the Black Effect Podcast Network in association with Best Case Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us, wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine.